it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. listening to the one sensational shot network welcome back into the electronic labyrinth in prospect this issue was meant to be a celebration of the return to cinemas of shane black and fred decker the writing team behind 80s cult favorite the monster squad into whose gleefully mucky mitts the latest iteration of the predator franchise was placed shane's still smoldering from 2016's the nice guys and we expected his next picture reunited with his old pal after three decades on a property still packing potential to be a fast and fun victory lap in execution, our enthusiasm was dampened when the Predator proved to be something of a short round. There's lots to like, but it's clear for all to see this film definitely went wrong. Nevertheless, over the next hour, Luke and I consider 31 years of the Predator franchise, with no little praise for John McTiernan and his marvellous original. Join the conversation at onesensationalshot.com. Fletcher. Uh, I know that you were very much looking forward to The Predator. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but how we felt about the film, although I think a casual glance at the internet will give you the general gist for how the world is responding. But I did go to my local cinema in anticipation of The Predator, and I, I when I went in with two coffees, because Lex was already in there with a seat, there was Pred- The Predator posters to promote the film. And they were, there was one free for every person who went in. And uh, I said, can I come and get mine at the end, please? Because I have two coffees. I can't carry it. They said, yes, of course. I went in, saw the film. We'll come to that in a moment. But as I left, I, uh, I, got, a, I got a poster. And, uh, and then I said, can I have one for my friend? Which I meant you, Fletch. Yeah. You're my friend. But my word. There was a whole thing around the fact that I wanted another poster... They said it was one per ticket holder. And I said, well, my wife's got a ticket anyway, so basically she can have it. And it was through gritted teeth that they uh, they reluctantly gave her this copy of a Predator poster. Because <laughs> um, uh, they knew I was going to be posting it. Fletch, um, I do apologise. I haven't posted it to you. And in fact, I've since recycled it for two reasons. One, um, I thought the poster wasn't very good it i didn't really enjoy the poster very much i didn't think the design was good and i didn't think it would fit with the aesthetic of, of the flat that you're living in with the, your girlfriend sarah thorpe the other reason is because i had also come out of the film the predator and i, and I didn't want to keep the poster it is the face of a predator or it's the face of a the predator <laughs> and it's made <laughs> up of it's made up of uh, human skulls to be honest right. with you it looks a bit more like the front cover to an Alien versus Predator computer game for the PC in like 2003 or something. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because the actual the, the publicity poster, which is used in all publicity I've seen for it, I think is exceptionally strong. I was in Vienna a month ago. In Europe, it seems to be called Predator Evolution. What we're trying to do today, I suppose, is a, a an electronic labyrinth look into the Predator series, with particular attention to John McTiernan's Predator. And then moving on to Shane Black's The Predator. And the wind was slightly taken out of our sails by our own muted responses to the new film. What's gone right and what's gone wrong? Because Mm. something I'll pose to you, Fletch, is that I don't think 
until maybe this one. I don't think there's such a thing as a bad Predator film. And uh, we can go through them, not in excruciating de detail. I, I agree, John McTiernan's Predator is, is the one we'll focus on. But for me, the, the original is an undisputed action 80s classic. And, you know, let's face it, the guy went on to make Die Hard soon afterward. So, you know, he's at his peak. Um, you've got Shane Black, you know, punching up the dialogue in it. And, and that comes through. Uh, it's almost a, you know, it's an 80s action film in itself but almost a pastiche of one and and, mm. and uh which which is which is really interesting the second one i think is a really fun 90s action picture it's it's lost its satirical bite or anything like that and it makes it's tr it's trying to have some kind of ecological message about how the world's going to be overpopulated in 1997 because it's it's made in 1990, isn't it? But for yeah. some reason, it's set in in the near future of 1997. And why they chose to set it, set it in the near future and make it so um, not post-apocalyptic, but uh, you know, getting toward the apocalypse, I don't I don't know because it kind of dates it a bit. But nevertheless, um, it's a fun action film. The Predator's less mysterious, um, and by the end, you know, they're basically hunting the predator which uh isn't necessarily the case in the first one but nevertheless i enjoy that one predators which was what 2010 it's essentially a remake of the first one isn't it but it's it it's fun because a it's got toe for grace and as part of our ongoing feature that 70 show watch where we where we keep a keep an eye on uh, the the cast of that 70 show he puts in a good performance but but beyond that predators i think is a solid sort of remake of the original uh if that was supposed to be a, um some kind of a, a reboot and it's it's good fun it's solid it doesn't surprise you sometimes i think shot for shot it's almost identical to the original mm. but it's it's solid enough this one is the first one that i really think um it was trying to be fresh trying to do something different but this was the one that really felt like it was of its own I know it just feels very 2018, didn't it? Uh, the, the the new one, but anyway, my point is, what I want to pose to you is that until this one, there's no there's no true bad Predator film, in my opinion. I think the rewatchability of all of those films until the most recent one have, have been spot on. I've been I, Predator Two is on late at night on ITV Two, and I'll always leave it on. I haven't seen Predator Two, and I haven't seen Predators. It's surprising to me. I, um, Baker almost spat out his coffee just a couple of days ago. You haven't seen Running Man, one of the, the one of the greatest suspensions of disbelief throughout late eighties and early nineties cinema is that it's so rarely explained why Arnie's characters talk with an Austrian accent. Mm. Uh, John Kimball, yeah. for instance, that by the time of Kindergarten Cop, they've even stopped trying to give him foreign names, and he's just straight up John Kimball, American detective John Kimball. This one, at least, mm. is called Dutch Schaefer. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so you can at least you can kind of reconcile. Well, maybe his family are from the Netherlands. So yeah, I haven't seen Predator Two, although I think that has an, an astonishing and memorable poster as well. I think the reason for it setting in 1997 is something that's elaborated upon in the most recent film by Shane Black and the development of a mythology, mm. which I did like about this one is the ecological message which you just decried actually but there's a point for it to be in 97 so that it's 10 years since the original Elpedia Carrillo mentions it in the first one how the predator only came to their village and the reports of it were only during the hottest years 
and then that's replicated in 97 and then in this one it goes uh, the Shane Black picture it goes full tilt for that climate change message which uh, mm. I th- you know it's a kind of a late to the party a tra- retcon yeah, a retcon yeah a retrofitting a retcon of this that and the other but uh, I, I that was welcome for me um, but we'll have to so you'll be the man to tell us about Predator 2 and Predators and we'll I'll have to stick with just Predator and the Predator I can't believe that this the uh, language is so simple and yet makes it so difficult to talk about these films quickly but that's what that that's that's kind of what they want right yeah. they want they they want you to go and see the Predator because if you're older and you remember the original but they also want you to go see it if you're a kid who has no knowledge of the original because it's a soft reboot. It's another soft reboot. Mm. And uh, even though all of these films do happen in the same universe, this, this one's definitely uh, yet another reboot. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, to be honest with you, but it does make the titles a bugger. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's switch back to John McTiernan's Predator. It was the first time I'd watched it in some time, and I realised the first time I'd watched all of it in one sitting. Usually when I watch it, I come in after the assault on the rebels' compound. Oh, and, what? And so you've I, missed the best bit. I know it, and so I only see the second hour because you missed the bit that's shot by the uh, like the A team second unit yeah, or something yeah. like oh, that. Yeah, but the, the, this is <laughs> and that's not a joke. It functions in three parts. The setup is a typical uh, '80s Reagan era, Iran Contra, mm. Granada style Green Berets versus Guerrillas action picture. And that runs for mm-hmm. 20 to 30 minutes, then 45 minutes in the jungle. And then the, the last piece, and this is what I found, the last piece with Arnie, uh, Mano a Mano, with... Well, it switches into horror, doesn't it? That, that, yeah. That's kind of... It becomes a kind of a survivalist horror, but it's very redolent of what McTiernan did at 11, 12 years later with The 13th Warrior. 96, 97 that I heard The Eaters of the Dead, Crichton's novel, which will... Uh, uh, I don't know how far to go in depth into this but Crichton wrote a novel which was kind of a literary pastiche come hoax his novel was supposedly the translation of a text by an Islamic scholar of the 12th century and this scholar had taken a journey with uh, a set of Vikings as they voyaged into the mist to fight basically Grendel Uh, for a period it was considered that that was legit and the text was legit, but in fact it was a, a literary fraud by Crichton, tongue-in-cheek. One of the most interesting things he's done, because his language is... He's a fairly prosaic writer. He never before or since, as far as I'm aware, did something as interesting as that, where this, the, the central concept was just attractive and uh, meta. McTiernan picked up the production. It cost a bomb, maybe as much as $100 million. Eventually the end of the production and the editing was taken away from him by Crichton, who himself had directed his own screenplays of his own book. So, first great train robbery, Westworld. The film's okay, but I watched it three or four years ago, The 13th Warrior, Antonio Banderas, uh, Clive Russell's in there, and I thought, shit, I can see what he was trying to do here, that it's a fine, it's an okay film, but there are sequences of that, that run alongside McTiernan's very best. And... There'll never be a director's cut, and McTiernan, has, his fall from grace has been well documented, and it's all down to wiretapping. McTiernan got into trouble for hiring a private detective, this sleazy fucker, Anthony Pellicano, a malign version of 
Josh Brolin in Hail Caesar by the Coen brothers, McTiernan hired this fella to tap the phone of the producer of the Rollerball film. Of all the pictures to be at the centre of the downfall of John McTiernan, it's tawdry and pathetic that it should be by far the worst film of his career, this ignominious Rollerball remake. Uh, McTiernan had a bad time on that, uh, I haven't even seen it. It's got Chris Clark. I mean, it's got Chris Klein in. That shows you the era in which we're talking because it's only because it's only between 1998 and 2003 that anybody was casting Chris Klein in a Hollywood A production. Uh, it, the production of it didn't go well, and McTiernan held a grudge against the producer and had this PI determining whether the producer had chatted shit about McTiernan behind his back. Uh, it's all of its grotty, avoidable, gossipy Hollywood nonsense. The sort of detective gigs that a Shane Black character would take. Pelicano went down for ten years. McTiernan took one year in prison, one year on house arrest. And the main reason for that was perjury, because he lied in court. Again, avoidable. Um, uh, and He's been out for a few years now, but uh, has suffered bankruptcy. What a spectacularly poor set of decisions but the, i guess the problem is because it it was directly linked to business that town's going to drop you like a ton of bricks if they think yeah. they can't do business with you anymore so i guess yeah, i also yeah. think like you stupid bastard we need mctiernan and james cameron and sam raimi now more than ever even though <laughs> even though that you know the marvel films are fine the marvel films are fine but they lack an adult edge that we saw in midnight run by martin brest just when we need McTiernan, when we need the, these individuals to come back and show th- their superb uh, confluence of film, uh, filmmaking understanding and commercial interest, they're away. Raimi hasn't made anything since Ounce the Great and Powerful. Before that, it was Drag Me to Hell. We're now, blimey, we're 11, 12 years removed from the Spider-Man films he made. And McTiernan still hasn't come back. I, d- I need some patron to give him $80 million dollars get him back into the Hollywood game for one or two more pictures. Out of pure curiosity, I'd love to see what what he'd do. I wonder if even how you make a film has changed a lot in that time. I'm sure it probably has. I'm I'm sure that he'd be on a set practically lost. What do you mean we're going to put this in after with CG? Yeah. What's the CG? (laughs) I do wonder about that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Circling back to my original point, the end of Predator feels like what Eaters of the Dead was and is and could be. Uh, a survivalist horror, because that could be set in any era. Once Arnie covers himself in mud clay and is mm. constructing Screams. his own traps, yeah, <laughs> and all of that, that could be 1987 or 1587 or indeed yeah. 87 AD. So for me, watching the film again for the first time in ages, it felt like a film of three parts. And um, when that, that's usually the sign of a genre film. One of my favourite genre films of the last 10 years is Cold in July by Jim Mickle and Nick Dimitri. And that turns every 30 minutes. It starts off as one thing. After half an hour, it becomes a little bit different. I like the way that it turned because it brought the audience with it at each turn. A kind of saying, um, not daring the audience, but saying, listen, you've come with us this far. We're moving it slightly in this direction now. Can you come with us? Cool. And now, in a half an hour's time, we're going to move it again. And Predator's changes are quite radical. If it, Because I don't think that the film should open with the shuttle launch. No, I think... I, I could be wrong in saying this, but I'm pretty sure that that was like the studio adding that in after. Yeah. I don't think that that was there. So, yeah, you're right. Like, the, the whole 
it starts off as a macho commando picture mm. and the, the 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 predator the alien is revealed so so slowly um you know it's literally invisible to begin with yeah. <laughs> let's face it uh so it's revealed so so slowly and uh i think it just works you know really nicely so i, I kind of feel like that was a studio note at, at the end and maybe McTiernan didn't have anything to do with it where they they, they were scratching their heads going oh the alien shows up toward the end we, we need to have a spaceship there at the beginning just so people know how he got there yeah. or something like I, I don't understand why it's there to be honest with you yeah I didn't like it um it it makes for a very good title card which is replicated mm. in Shane Black's The Predator but yeah. I would much prefer that that was elided entirely and we start with the military incursion. Interestingly, it kind of it shows. Uh, I think it betrays on the part of the studio a boneheadedness and um, a lack of courage in thinking that the audience will follow. As we say so often on one sensational shot, audiences are as smart as you allow them to be. If you feed them nothing but junk food, they'll grow fat and stupid and ignorant. But you just need to raise the bar slightly higher and. I'm convinced that audiences are happy to be challenged. I think they enjoy being challenged. It works really well, A, because it suddenly becomes a horror film halfway through, which is great. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy the surprise of it. You're right, it doesn't work so well with the, the opening of the spaceship, so we know, we're just waiting for Matey Boy to turn up. You're quite right. But um, it's, it, it works for me because it's, it, becomes, it becomes a pastiche of 80s macho... Uh, uh, cinema. So you've got, like you mentioned, you've got Carl Weathers and Arnie Schwarzenegger at the beginning when they meet up. We've got the classic, often memed shot of them shaking hands with yeah. the world's most epic handshake and their muscles. There's the close up on their muscles, uh, just the biceps as they're uh, rippling uh, while shaking hands. And um, it, there's no real way to kind of explain it. It's a mid air arm wrestle of some description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, you know, you go from that, you go from, and I, I, I almost think, you know, was McTiernan that clever or forward thinking? I don't know. Like, like when they shoot up the South Americans in that wonderful scene, and it is fantastic. It's 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 bloody, it's gory, it's exciting. Um, it is shot by the the crew of the A team, so you get a lot of very A team esque shots of slow motion people falling out of buildings and. It's it's obviously dialed up to eleven because it's yeah. more violent. So you got all that stuff, that real eighties um, cliche, uh, and then it switches it to horror. And I, you know, I love that the yeah the hunters become the hunted. So they're cold bloodedly taking out all the South Americans, um, but then you see the predator take them off, pick off the cast one by one so easily, which which really you know gives that sense of the threat. And the fact that these commandos aren't aren't maybe as macho as they they think they are, and yeah, you're right. At the end, you got Arnie covered in mud, primordial, and I I do like that it's it's a little bit of a commentary on 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 eighties macho pictures themselves. But um, I do like the idea because you, you look at the poster as well. You you know you're talking about how uh, that possibly you know the audiences were just s- surprised when the predator was revealed halfway through, and it suddenly turns into more of a horror picture survival horror picture the original poster is just arnie with with his guns out and his gun out uh, <laughs> and it, and the the strap line is uh, the hunt's about to begin 
Now, there's no context whatsoever. You don't see the alien on the, on the poster or, or anything like that. So I really do like the idea, especially uh, when people were, were picking the VHS out at the petrol station, uh, thinking that maybe they were going to see a commando picture, but it turned into a slasher halfway through. Yeah. Uh, that always amuses me. So where did they go? Predator 2 is... Arnie had a salary dispute. So he was going to be back in the second one. But unfortunately... Um, the, the that was not to be. Um, so they take it from the jungle to the urban jungle of LA. It's got a wonderful opening shot where you think you're in the forest, you think you're in the woods, and the camera pans away into LA. You realise that you're just doing a helicopter shot a shot over the park. So it, it, it's a really cool reveal when suddenly you're in Los Angeles and you've got fan- some still fantastic performances. And this is why I, I can't fault the film. Because you've got Bill Paxton is, is a really great second-in-command detective. Um, you've, got, um, you've got Danny Glover, of course, who's playing the lead. J- jury's always out with him. I'm never 100% sure if he's a truly great actor. But he kind of does his thing very well. And it's the first time you really get that sense of world-building as well because you've got the... He does eventually make it onto the ship toward the end. You do see the alien skull... Uh, which, contrary to popular belief, is not the beginning of the Alien vs. Predator um, uh, franchise or, or, or the kind of like love affair that Fox had with, with that idea, that premise, uh, because the, the Dark Horse comics, Alien vs. Predator, predate that by a couple of years. Hmm. So they were already making Alien vs. Predator. But nevertheless, you've got the skull there, and you've got this whole sense of honour, which they do touch on in that first one, but this whole code of conduct that the Predator has. You see some other Predators at the end as well, and um, and Glover is bestowed a gift, which is an old, um, an old pistol from, like, hundred years ago. Hmm. So you, Because he, he was worthy enough, he took down a Predator, and... It's just this little touch that where you go, ah, they've been coming to Earth for a long time. You know, they come here a lot, obviously, and they've, um, and then nothing. You know, there's nothing after that second one. It didn't. It, it it made it made its money back, but when you look at the drop off between the first and the second, it's it's pretty astronomical. So it's no wonder that they didn't suddenly make a third. This is an interesting thing to me because I miss those days. In the 80s and the 90s, you'd have a film and you'd have a sequel, and the sequel wouldn't make as much money, and they generally ended it. Like, yeah, like Gremlins, like Adam's Family. And these days, like, the whole the, the whole franchise thing, I mean, I'm jumping ahead too much, but with The Predator, they, I can only think Shane Black was was taking the piss. I, I, I can only think Shane Black was writing that, thinking, I'm going to write... I've seen Jurassic World... And now I'm going to write a film that's uh, as fan servicey as Jurassic World, is made in a similar way, and alludes to silly subplots that are going to go nowhere just to set sequels up. Hmm. And that's that's all I can think of for that one. But uh, where was I? Predator Two. I would urge people to watch it. It's it's got great performances. It's just a straight up action film though. The horror is toned down. It's bloody. It's gory. It's it's disgusting at times, but a lot of the horror, to be honest with you, is more in this kind of near future of uh, of uh, where clearly LA is overcrowded, overpopulated, and um, there's a lot of gang warfare and street crime, and that 
that's almost more the horror of it and uh, the, the predator element is there but you know by the end Arnie was it took Arnie you know ev- every fiber of his being and ev- every um, every ounce of his strength and uh, every piece of intellect that he'd had uh, learning how this predator had killed all of his friends in the original movie uh, and he had to get practically naked swimming in mud uh, in order to take this predator down. By the end, there's an older detective running around chasing the predator down. Um, and that's never quite... It's, it's not quite as scary, the second one. But man, I watch that anytime it's on, Fletch. And I cannot believe you haven't seen that on Late Night ITV 2. I know. I don't know why I haven't seen Predator 2. And it's uh, it was a pop culture touchstone when I was coming up. The shot of the Predator on the Eastern Columbia building in that poster oh, yeah. was used for the video game because of its notoriety at the time. Uh, at the back of the football magazines I got, so Match and Shoot and 90 Minutes, uh, Predator was always featured heavily in a big giveaway. One of those prize lines where you call up, I never did it myself, but the the mother load of winnings is uh, a Nintendo and a Mega Drive and a baseball cap and a set of t-shirts, and a football, and football boots, and a predator mask. There always seems to be a predator (laughs) mask, or predator gloves. And I found it's a repulsive thing. One of my favourite pieces of trivia about it is that Jim Cameron came up with that idea, having sat next to Stan Winston, while Winston was uh, prepping for the picture. And this is the genius of the man. Idly said, I'd like to see a baddie with mandibles. You can have that one. So Stan just just... draws them on. Yeah. There's a lot of YouTube footage you can watch, uh, and it's on the Predator DVD as well, um, of the original Predator suit, which was supposed to be... It, it's basically a big latex kind of lobster outfit. It looks really unimpressive, yeah. really not very scary, and you can see a lot of screen tests, because at one point, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Jean-Claude Van Damme, I should say, was going to play the Predator. And um, he is dressed in this suit. He was really upset that you weren't going to get to see his face, he thought that's why he would have been cast, and and then he sort of was presented with this awful lobster outfit. Mm. It's one of the most hilarious things you can possibly uh, watch on YouTube. I would say is having Jean Claude Van Damme running around the forests uh, in this lobster outfit doing screen tests. Because it's he, very, he has very to be, amusing. Because the forest is green, he has to be red, isn't it? Because they needed a yeah. colour that was as far from green on the palette as possible. But that's inevitably, it. yeah, it looks like. Um, Uh, one of Rita Repulsa's baddies from the Power Rangers series 23 (laughs) years ago. Um... So, so yeah, you're right. Stan Winston was called in as an absolute emergency. That's when he put together the Predator. And, um, yeah, you're right. Jim Cameron, as legend has it, just said, can you put some mandibles on? Because he just happened to be sitting next to Stan on the plane, (laughs) which is a great story. And another project to which James Cameron is tangentially attached, his screenplay for Spider-Man, written in the 90s for Michael Bean for Michael Bean, originated biological web shooters. And that was kept for the Raimi film. James Cameron gets where water doesn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, man, there's so much to talk about The Predator. We can't really do it on the podcast very well, but even the Alan Silvestri score is fantastic. Yeah. And um, we're going to be doing Back to the Future at some point in a future uh, edition of, of the show where I'm talking about my latest... in my DVD A to Z. Um, and the Alan Silvestri score is great.
I liked in rewatching Predator was essentially experimental its camera work was so the look of when the camera shows to us how the predator sees things 10 20 30 seconds at a time and its replication of sunny landums all of that reminded me of mctiernan's first picture which i only watched earlier this year nomad starring pierce brosnan um it's a horror picture and it's fantastic it's uh, experimental in its construction, uh, cross-cutting between timelines, and it felt like a calling card, as though McTiernan, having learned everything he did in film school, uh, wanted, uh, you know, essentially a 90-minute showreel that could be observed by producers, so he can say, look, these are the things I can nail. Like Predator had a little bit of that, because the, the films for which he's yeah. known, Die Hard, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Hunt for Red October, we presume... And we remember them as straightforward action pictures. And they don't have the same flourishes as Nomads and even as Predator. But then it's not necessary for them to have. I'm going to study him. I'm going to spend the next six months studying him properly. He's another one of those directors that we've known his films for so long and interacted with them at such an early age that his language is uh, elementary to us. We've probably never sat down and unpicked it and thought about how smart it is and even considered it in context because you know when was the first time you saw Die Hard I think I was 10 so you don't really question how these films are put together it's no, like, no, no. now we're older when we go to see for instance a Christopher Nolan film you're watching Dunkirk and all of the time you're considering its arrangement and its editing and the uh, the shot choices but there's whole tranches of cinema that we had around us as children so it's it's just there you you take it for granted so i'm going to do that for mctiernan because throughout his career he shows instances of very intelligent filmmaking particularly thoughtful in its consideration of how to convey information to the audience and i'll give you an example there's a hundred hollywood films that fuck up languages how many bloody times in hollywood movies have we seen characters who aren't English speakers, speak to one another in English so that the audience can understand them, so there isn't any need for subtitles, speak to each other in English, but with the accent of the country they're from. And it doesn't make any sense. It's like my mum's always said to me, what is a Russian accent? What is a German accent? Germans don't speak with a German accent. Germans speak German-accented English, but they themselves, there is no German accent. There are regional accents within Germany, and that's one reason I liked Death of Stalin. It had that same intelligent approach to the to the issue of accents. It, when trying to convey the uh, salt of the earth, rough and ready, straightforward disposition of one of its characters, played by Jason Isaacs, the uh, head of the Red Army, they give him a Yorkshire accent because... As English speakers, that's a shorthand for that kind of character. That makes sense to us. Uh, in that film, Jeffrey Tambor and Steve Buscemi, the American actors, they kept their own accents. And it, it didn't uh, uh, detract from the verisimilitude. In fact, it enhanced it. It made more sense to decide which regional accents best represented those characters. Right, so what McTiernan does in Hunt for Red October is really smart. As the film begins, all the Russian characters speak Russian with English subtitles. You can imagine what a stretch that is for Sean Connery. So that has to be dispensed with fairly quickly. How does McTiernan do it? He has one of the characters, uh, 
one of the men under the command of Connery. Read aloud, the camera zooms slowly into his lips, hits on a word that is the same essentially in both English and Russian. The camera zooms out, and as it does so, the act, uh, I think it's Peter Firth, the actor is now speaking English in his own English accent. And from that point on in the movie, all the Russian characters speak English. And the seventh angel poured forth his bowl into the air, and a voice cried out from heaven, saying, It is done. A man with your responsibilities reading about the end of the world. And what's this? I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. It is an ancient Hindu text quoted by an American. American? Mm. He invented the atomic bomb. And he was later accused of being a communist. No need for silly accent. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know, um, I know I what you're getting at. Yeah, very long. I know. I think your mother it, had a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and so yeah, just so there's just one instance of what I consider to be uh, John McTiernan's ingenuity in yeah in mainstream cinema. Try and watch Nomads. I'd lend it to you, but I've got it on tape, and I don't think that's any good to you. But it's so it's so bloody blisteringly entertaining. Um, as a plot, it's it kind of loses itself. But you wouldn't think it was McTiernan. It it doesn't. It, it feels like a completely different director because he didn't do those things again very often, if at all. You, you were saying that it feels like a pastiche at times. I think it can only be taken as a pastiche when the whole group of them shoot into the forest at nothing. Yeah, 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 now, yeah. You know, that's, and if they it's do a that for ten great seconds, great macho moment. Yeah, if if they do that for ten seconds, that's an action movie. If they do that for forty seconds, that's a joke, and it goes on forever. Yeah, uh, and it it does feel like the um, it feels like Hot Shots Part Two in Hot Shots Part Two when it has a kill count, and at the bottom of the yeah. screen it's saying more kills than Rambo Three and all of that, mm-hmm. and then Miguel Ferrer does the uh, war. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it it felt like yeah. that and I, I think that um subversion I don't know how subversionist McTiernan is. I have as I say, I haven't interacted with his films at that level. But I think there is subversion there and I think that when given that screenplay, um th- these guys aren't idiots. They're, you know, they're university educated. They've uh, the the directors that we like who came up in the seventies and the eighties and into the nineties they studied classic cinema, the French New Wave and Hitchcock from the 40s, 50s, 60s. And when given a screenplay like Predator, I think we shouldn't presume that that, that they're not doing something satirical and subversive. Yeah, I agree. Um, the original script by Jim and John Thomas Brothers, I, I, it was a spec script, I think, wasn't it? It was mm. their first thing they did. And um, 
they've written stuff since. I think um, I, I know that they did the story to Wild Wild West. <laughs> I know that that I think that's the and last what a story it was. I think it was more at face value, as is often the case with these things, isn't it? You know, people write a script often it is more in face value, but I think it it did go through the the filter of of McTiernan, and he's not a particularly subser- subversive director. You're right, but you're right that there must be creative decisions that are being made during the process where people think, no, 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 well. We'll frame it like this, you know. It, it, at its most simplistic, they probably think that's a fun gag, you know. And 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 on the other end of the scale, they're thinking, oh, maybe there's something to be said there. So I, I think there's a big dollop of pastiche in it, which mm. is one of the reasons I love it so much. Um, yeah, Blaine's preposterous, impossible minigun can only be pastiche. In Bill Duke's Mac, you have a character that at every pause begins habitually shaving, as though his masculinity is such. That he he grows a beard minute by minute, um, yeah. I think what what Predator points to is uh, a subtlety in eighties cinema that was lost by the nineties, where postmodernism and pastiche was signposted for its audience as if to make it feel safe to to let them know from the outset it's okay, you can laugh at this. But it was Back to the Future does a little bit of it as well. It was much more subtle. From the filmmakers of the 1980s. I mean, just the the whole thing. I think the whole thing's executed so well, um, and I do love the three act structure. How it's so clear, and I love that it's intimate. It it, it lacks the because you know with the the latest film, there's an element of intimacy there because because we we car- we we have our our main characters who we get to love and and know quite well throughout the picture, but there's still this element of the scientists and the lab and there's this bigger world out there that whereas with this one I do love that it is just in the woods with a with some guys mm. and that works well and I feel like these days people wouldn't accept that I feel like films are now overly complicated they they have to have these subplots they have to have these these elements of world building mm. and because it is an original premise and it's an original um idea if you like i just feel like i feel like they just wrote a damn good script and then it was it was produced and directed in such a way that makes it a really entertaining and enjoyable piece of entertainment which is what people forget to do now an awful lot and i would include the predator in that because it falls into a lot of traps of the whole world building and sequels and and all sorts of things the the only thing i can i can do with the predator is to think that he that's a joke in itself and that that was part of the gag but i like the intimacy of the original predator i love that when it's toward the end isn't it it's as we're entering the third act you see the characters physically walk into the third act because they they're yeah. going into into the depths of the woods to to get to the checkpoint whatever they have to walk over a log don't they and they yeah. hear they hear um withers scream yeah. and you see them all walk over the log literally crossing the threshold you know bridges as we all know symbolically in literature the point of no return you can't go back from a bridge it's why as soon as han solo steps onto that bridge in episode seven you go "Uh oh that's the end of that guy and i love that i love that there's nothing wrong with um something being quite formulaic and 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 in this sense the the three act structure is incredibly defined and i think it works well it's definitely the sort of thing that you you could hold up almost in a 
in a storytelling class and go, hey, th- this is a way you can tell a story. Yeah. Uh, act one, act two, act three. It's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It sets the characters up. Bad things happen to them. And in the third act, uh, it, they overcome. Um, whilst even worse things are happening to them. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the intimacy of that Predator film. It's self-contained. It's compact. It's mm. a desert island disc. Um, and that's one of the things I, that I, that I think is great about it. The second one, there was only only a different way you could go with it. And they chose to go down an action route instead of a horror route. And I don't blame them for it at all. And I think that ever since then, they've been trying to get back to what makes a Predator film. Is it woods? Is it forests? Yeah. Is it guns? Yeah. <laughs> they don't, and and people are trying to put that together. And in in, in Predators, in twenty ten, they literally remade the first one. Sometimes shot for shot. There's a slight twist because the woods are actually on the alien planet. Um, but it's it's good fun. It's solid enough. And I think with the the latest one, uh, I think it was studio pressure that forced them to put woods in the third act. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't any woods. One of the things I liked about it was it was a bit refreshing and different and they tried to do it in a domesticated environment. They tried to do it in um, the suburbs and I thought that was, well, that's, that's fun. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but in, in, in the final act, I think it was all the reshoots, right? Mm. They, uh, they decided to put some woods in there just in case people forgot what Predator was about or something. But that's what I love about the original Predator, the intimacy. John McTiernan is an intelligent director, and he's by far the best director that's worked on this franchise. Shane Black is, a, in my opinion, and I think in Luke's opinion as well, a terrific writer, but he's not yet a great director. Nimrod Antal is adequate, and Stephen Hopkins in the 90s was a safe pair of hands for a studio picture these days doesn't really direct that much but McTiernan's intelligence really shows I think uh, he's saying something when in the first act we're presented with um, brute firepower overcoming the Central Americans but then by the third act Arnie has entirely stripped himself of any military hardware because it's been proven completely useless in pursuit of the Predator and it's it's interesting really to have a an antagonist who proves that his his firepower is far superior and the protagonist's response is to take it down to the very basics to nothing mm. but caveman style bow and arrow uh, f- making fire through a flint and a bit of scrub mm. and creating traps i don't think that's the kind of i think in today's cinematic environment and it's, it's probably born out, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but it's probably born out in The Predator. The response to um, being overmatched would be to find a way to then up the ante even further. Uh, you know, th- I always feel like the world's blowing up at some point in those uh, yeah. Marvel pictures, especially in the Avengers crossover ones. But yeah, yeah so you're it, right. So even there's an ele- there's, if it's not subversion, then there's still an element of consideration and intelligence there that that McTiernan is directing a screenplay and I won't attribute it all to him because I, you, listeners know how often I like to cherry pick the good parts and say, well, anything good was John Sayles. The bits I don't like, they were some other schmo. And I do, a li- do it a little bit with Die Hard, although I think Die Hard is as close to perfect as a film can be. I always think that the best stuff is Jeb Stewart because he made Switchback and a couple of other really well-written pictures. And anything I don't like, I say, oh, they probably did Stephen E. D'Souza on reshoots or something. But, uh, yeah, Predator's an intelligently made film. It's It has got something to say. You know, I just haven't seen it enough to know exactly what it is saying. But 
the um, the de-arming of its central character is interesting. It's interesting as well that the predator that here we have a a baddie who doesn't prey on the weak chooses to um, mm. uh, pass you them over entirely. Yeah, mm. uh, we should move on to the predator, but I do want to say that I was surprised, but. Thorpe was watching Predator with me, and she really liked Shane Black's jokes. Billy! Billy! The other day, I was going down to my girlfriend. I said to her, Jeez, you got a big pussy. Jeez, you got a big pussy. She said, why did you say that twice? And I said, I didn't. See, it's because of the echo. With... <laughs> It's a very good cast, a very well cast film, and considering it has only nine principles, it's a cast of surprising diversity. Number one, surprising diversity in a number of ways. So it casts two non-actors in that cast. Jesse Ventura was still a professional wrestler with the WWF, now WWE, when he was cast as Blaine. Shane Black's a writer. We've talked on the podcast and on the website how he does see himself as an actor and acts occasionally, but he was principally a writer and was brought on board to script doctor the Thomas's screenplay. There's a strong level of racial diversity. Carl Weathers, Bill Duke, African-American. Elpidia Carrillo, one of three Hispanic leading ladies Arnie had through the 80s and into the 90s. Uh, off the back of this, then Maria Conchito Alonso in The Running Man and Rachel Ticketin. In Total Recall, something that is never mentioned, uh, uh, I find it commendable. And Richard Chavez as Ramirez, um, I'm not sure if he actually is Hispanic, but certainly his character is. And Sonny Landham, latterly Billy Bear in 48 Hours by Walt Hill. Part Cherokee, part Seminole, he plays the tracker Billy. Which is stereotypical to have a Native American character... Uh, display that level of mysticism and oneness with nature and be a tracker, but... Those those characteristics are only ever seen as virtuous. Um, he's an integral part of the team. I, I enjoy it. Uh, Sonny Landham's diversity is not just drawn from his ethnicity, but from his career choices as an actor, because he started in pornography. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's got that ragtag feel. Everyone, um, you, everyone's got a very distinct character, yeah. and uh, everyone's great in it. I was delighted to be reminded how good Jesse Ventura is in it. It isn't uh, I think if he were out in today's environment, he'd be Dwayne Johnson. He'd be that big. He'd be the John Cena. Mm. As it was, he made a few pictures, mainly with Arnie, and turns up in Demolition Man in a very small role. Son of a bitch is dug in like an Alabama tick. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. Oh. Okay. You got time to duck? So, the predator. Um, and uh, what did this? What did this get so wrong there? <laughs> I do. I do feel like there's this element of there's this thread throughout all of them, which is what makes a predator film. Because that first one is so self-contained and intimate and perfect. What makes yeah. a good predator picture? And I feel like they got Shane Black back. We covered a little while ago on here, or maybe it was a long time ago on here, when we were doing a lot of Shane Black pictures as part of our um, Black History Month. Uh, we covered Monster Squad, didn't we? Which was written with uh, Fred Decker. And um, 
you know, Fred Decker's written a few bits, but not a whole lot in the past, what, 15 years. Mm. So I'm I'm not entirely sure. He, he'd probably sat there, he'd watched Jurassic World, and he thought, yeah, we'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> and let's make that. In anticipation for me and Luke and so many of you out there, this was meant to be the triumphant return of Black and Decker after shooting Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps is so well regarded its reputation only continues to grow there's genuine affection for both those pictures now in fact black and decker got back together on a tv movie i think it was meant to be a pilot called edge i don't know much about it but it's a a revisionist western from three years ago my anticipation for this was so high because it's their reunification after all this time it's been 30 years since they've had a big thing that they've written together i like the sensibilities of the monster squad night of the creeps is good I welcomed this and as we got 20 or 30 minutes into the film I realised that this is a Monster Squad retread. It's set in the same Mm. suburbia. It's set over a handful of crazy days and nights. The protagonist, Boyd Holbrook, playing Quinn McKenna, his relationship with his wife looks like the parents from Monster Squad but one year on when they finally have broken up. It's very similar. I mean, in the Monster Squad it's a, a group of five or six kids and their dog And in this one, it's a group of five or six loonies. And there's a dog as well. Right, so I've been thinking about it for three weeks now. And I'm not going to attribute it to studio interference. As I said earlier, I need to approach this with a greater level of critical thinking than just saying all the good stuff was Shane and anything that went wrong was clearly the nefarious bigwigs. No, I don't think so. There was a lot of studio interference, though. There was, but but, but I I think the, the main problem on this one, this is the argument I'll make. Running time is 107 minutes. Same as Predator, same as Predator 2. Presumably Shane Black wanted it to be 107 minutes. But I think him and Fred Decker wrote a screenplay that had to be two hours plus. And I think that's why what has been delivered is a film that is borderline incomprehensible in its editing. It is ruined by its editing. And I think... I'm not going to say the studio came in and ripped out 40 minutes... I think they overwrote the screenplay, gave it too many subplots, too many interesting characters. And the way that James Cameron compensates for this, James Cameron says you make a film three times. There's the film that you write, the film you shoot, and the film that you edit. When it comes to the edit, Cameron is happy to take out enormous chunks. So on The Abyss, he took out an entire six or seven minute sequence involving the aliens at the bottom of the ocean manipulating the waves to threaten earth within with cataclysmic destruction of tsunamis if they didn't um, come back from this um, nuclear armageddon they were pushing on themselves he took that all out he didn't just nibble around the edges and the same thing in aliens as well any aliens fan will know that the special edition which i regard as the superior version although cameron doesn't the special edition has a long sequence at hadley's hope the colonists planet Mm. with mac mcdonald from red dwarf and mm-hmm. uh, Newt's parents, and again, that's um, four to seven minutes, I'd say, of, of and it's all great, all very well acted, and it's uh, it fits into the film perfectly, but again, Cameron didn't just take 20 seconds off of each scene, he said, shit, you know, I can lose that five minutes, I love it, but I can tell my story without it. I think my, my problem with, Predator, with the Predator is that it seems like they've taken the opposite approach, and taken a few seconds off every fucking scene in the whole film and also potentially tried to delete subplots they've either cut too lightly or too hard and then what we have is difficult to follow yeah 
Olivia Munn's character just kind of turns up as the scientist lady. But I, th- I think didn't it was wasn't she introduced with uh, his friend who is yeah. a registered sex offender and therefore was removed from the film. So I think her introduction was he was hitting on her, uh, and that's her introduction as the as the scientist lady um, yeah. by the 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 biologist so because since they cut that scene they just go um she'll just turn up and uh, that'll be her introduction and that one i feel like the when it comes to stuff like that i feel like shane black was always onto a loser um as if the picture itself is cursed because we all know how effectively he can write introductory scenes for characters and munn's decision to publicize the information she received it weakened her character and it weakened the film and I think that it achieved nothing meaningful or positive. And I'm not speaking to the morality of what she did, but the outcome is that it weakened the film and the film is weaker for it. Mm. And if she feels that she had to do that and then the studio did the only thing that they could do, really, I suppose. But the sum result is that Olivia Munn turns up and you think, shit, this isn't how Gina Davis was introduced in The Long Kiss Goodnight. This isn't how any Shane Black character in any of his films has ever been introduced. She's just suddenly there. But... Let's not allow our heads to be turned. Let's not focus upon that editing. Because I get the feeling there's a little bit of Ghostbusters reboot studio spin here. We shouldn't focus upon Olivia Munn's decision. Because the rest of the film is entirely compromised by reshoots and editing. And so let's. it would be stupid of us to identify only that small um, tabloid snippet which maybe the studio is quite pleased is drawing attention away from the what seems like a colossal set of reshoots and an entirely new third act to the picture introduced very late on. But it gets worse. It's not just that. It's when she's then she then goes to the scientist guys because she's brought on board to help out with this specimen of a predator that they've got stunned, subdued, sleeping and we got the great line from the trailer, you know. Uh, that's not a predator, that's a sports hunter. Well, we took a vote. Predator's cooler, right? <laughs> Fuck yeah. yeah. That's all fun, but... Uh, and don't get me wrong, I all the, the, the post-traumatic stress disorder commandos I thought were great, and the jokes came thick and fast with those guys. I was laughing. I was one of the few people in the cinema TV laughing the whole way through. I, the thing I'll say about the predator is I enjoyed... My time in the cinema. It was a bit incomprehensible. The editing is blinking, you'll miss it. <laughs> like, who died? Yeah. Where did they die? Yeah. Um, but I did enjoy it. And Lex, who was dreading going to see it, because she's not an action movie person, enjoyed it. She had a, she had a, a, a laugh most of the way through. Um, and a lot of the characters are quite... You know, they're lovable. You want to you wanna hang out with them and spend time with them. Mm. But like there was, there was points where tonally I thought, this is just a bit too much. So the scientist guys um, being, you know, behaving in that kind of frat boy way. Uh, I don't know. There was, mo- there was moments like that where I thought, this maybe this is just a bit too much. And the, the only thing I could think was they were either trying to bring back a kind of 80s, frenetic 80s vibe to it without being too retro, like the new Star Wars films, for example, or or that they they just overstepped the mark and they got the humour wrong for some of the characters or some of the scenes. I don't I don't know. Um, My auditorium so- really dug it. It wasn't full, but the people around us were laughing a lot. And it's typical Shane Black dad jokes and the the risque uh, bloke humour 
yeah, it was going down really well. Uh, a shame about the editing and, and generally the uh, the impetus of the film because it's the first 20 to 30 minutes are slightly difficult to follow and it's really easy to check out when, when a film does that. This isn't a, a complex espionage picture or all the president's men. It's meant, it is meant to be and is designed to be and written to be a straightforward action picture. But mm. the editing has eviscerated it. And I suppose it sounds like you and I and some of our audiences as well just went along with the ride for the for the characters, for the loonies on the bus, who are, I thought were deployed superbly. And the um, one of whom was completely new to me, the guy Augusto Aguilera, who played... Um, oh, what's his character name? Nettles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'd yeah. never seen him in anything. He must be in some TV show that I don't know about. I thought he was terrific, and I was concerned about the casting of Keegan-Michael Key because he's so overtly comic. It's rare for Shane Black to cast an actual comedian. Usually he has straight actors playing for laughs, and that usually that always works really well. But the, uh, yeah, the, the loonies on the... as they called themselves, the, um, the PTSD folks, the loonies on the mm. bus, they earned their death scenes, they meant something, and the relationship between Baxley and Coyle actually played by Tom Jane, always welcome, reminded me of Mac and Blaine in Predator. In, in many ways, um, primarily because I think with, uh, with the Predator, Shane Black's able to say just a little bit more than McTiernan did in Predator and get even closer to announcing them as a couple. The character beats and the emotions they elicited were all honest. And I, I enjoyed the family element as well. Yeah. You said it in Suburbia. Uh, Jacob uh, Tremley's a decent kid actor liked him in, in room liked him in book of henry as well one of the few people who like that film yeah but uh he he's decent in it um i don't know plot wise though do you think this is jumping the shark for predator ignoring the alien versus predator stuff yeah uh, but this this is a film like i know you said they linked back a little bit to kind of what was set up in predator 2 that there was a uh, a heat wave in LA, and and maybe the predator comes back whenever it's it's hot. And yeah, this has a real environmental message in it because <laughs> because the predator is killed by a bigger predator, and oh my god, I'll come on to that in a second as well. But the bigger predator, sorry, the the littler predator that's killed uh, kind of halfway through the picture was coming to warn us about global warming, and the bigger predators are here to take our DNA. Because because global warming is getting to such a point, we're not going to be around much longer as a human race for them to take the DNA from us because they like to have human hybrids of predators. Yeah. And man, I'm, I'm st I was starting to just think this is ludicrous for a film about an alien coming to kill people. I'm starting to think this is not as unbelievable. <laughs> We're yeah. starting to just get a bit, a bit too much. And then, of course, the tag on the end with the film. I was happy when the film was over. I thought that's it. It's a happy ending. It's all worked out for everyone. Hooray! But then we got the obligatory sequel tag at the end, where they go back to the lab and the predator, the littler predator, has left us a prize, and it's a predator killer suit that attaches itself to the scientist and yeah obviously that sets up yeah it was a very similar thing to in independence day 2 whatever that was called resurgence or something or mm. uh that, that had a similar tag on the end where they said now we have alien weapons and now we're gonna 
next time they come back we'll be ready or whatever it was i can't remember yeah i thought that was jumping the shark a bit for for a picture that's about an alien coming to earth i get it but i just thought this is too much this is too goofy hmm. but um i did enjoy the father son dynamic and all that stuff that was all great i enjoyed yeah. all of that stuff um, what it really suggested was a couple of people who can't write sci-fi at the end it was like they'd forgotten it's a very it was very similar actually to the end of alien covenant when it was almost like the studio said to Ridley Scott, you can do your... You're dealing with a, some kind of ethereal themes of where did humans come from, but an alien has to get out. You've got to call it alien. And then in the third act, you have to have some stuff on corridors in a spaceship with mm. a flamethrower. You have to. In the last 10 minutes, you have to. Yeah. And I feel like that's what they did. That's what the studio note was here. Because they reshot the whole ending after it tested poorly. This is, you know, it's pretty well documented over the internet. And it was a completely different ending. There's pictures, if you Google them, there's pictures of predators in tanks. And that was the original ending that was shot. There was like an air, they go to Area 51 or something. And then they team up with some predators. I guess the littler predators taking on the big one or something. I don't know. And there's, there's, pictures of of people in alien in predator costumes in tanks and they shot that and i can only assume that that's when you'd then have got the, a lot of the death scenes for the the uh the heroes that kind of thing but uh, they definitely shot it and some of that stuff leaked from set so this is where edward james almost at area 51 would have fit into it and they reshot it all after it tested poorly with audiences and then this, i feel like the studio said Whatever, guys, just stick them in the woods at the end, just like the original one. It'll yeah. work. And then I feel like they said, yeah, fine, all right, we'll do that. And that's why in the woods, it's bloodier than anything else. It's edited quicker than any, anything else in the whole film. It really does pick up the pace to such a degree that you, you don't realise when people get killed and stuff. Um, yeah, you're talking about Sterling K. Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Who has he, the predator gun? He blows his own head off. Yeah, I missed it. Nothing's made of it. There's no follow-up. That's poor filmmaking. That's incorrect filmmaking. Oh, what you mean in terms of not knowing if someone, if a character's dead or not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Basic film grammar dictates that you must show your baddie's death. You can't set up a scene which requires that the audience infer what happened. That was witless. There's basic mistakes there, and um, I don't think they're mistakes that Shane Black would make because this isn't his first studio picture. This isn't his mm. first directorial gig. This is his fourth, and he already did a big one with Iron Man 3, and that was fine. They didn't have the same basic grammatical errors as this one did. At, at the outset, I said I don't want to blame everything on the studio I because that seems too obvious an answer, and I don't want to be that Shane Black fanboy that believes he could never put a foot wrong. And so that's why I've said I feel like maybe him and Fred wrote a screenplay that was just too big for the film they needed to make. And in taking bits out, they eventually lost coherence of the film. One should be able to follow a film like this. Um, at one point, Olivia Olivia Munn's in it, the spaceship flies away and then she's back with them. If there's not an obvious explanation for that, given within the film, the film and the filmmakers have failed. It's, it's not um, a plot hole. It's a basic mistake. If you if you go in just hoping for more Shane Black witticisms, yeah, you'll get that. It's it's mm. as you, as you've said, it's a, a fun 
100, 110 minutes hanging out with Shane Black characters. He's written some really good ones, but they deserve a film better than this. Nevertheless, it's still fun. You know what? That's kind of what, one of my problems with it is that you want to go and see this picture because it's a Shane Black picture and you want to support Hollywood making Shane Black films. However, if it's not good and you give them your money for it anyway then you're supporting bad filmmaking and bad decision-making by producers and every level in the chain. So what do you do? If, it, if this film doesn't do well, Hollywood might say, well, sorry, but Shane Black films don't do very well. If it does well, then they'll, they'll be vindicated and say, great, we don't need to explain anything. We can trim these all down to 90 minutes. Nothing makes any sense. As long as there's three action set pieces and some jokes, then we're well away. It's a bastard of a decision to make, I'm afraid. It is. I don't think it's going to make the money back, really. It's made over the budget, but, you know, the classic thing, if you try and allow for the marketing spend, I think maybe it's going to break even worldwide, but I don't think it's going to It's going to really do what it needs to be doing, to certainly to, to generate any sequels. Mm. So it's a shame as well, because it's, it's yet another franchise that's going to be left with a film, a sequel, two reboots. Which just doesn't hang together very nicely in any way. I'm not saying everything needs to be a trilogy or a quadrilogy or an anthology. But, well, I suppose this is an anthology in a sense, isn't it? Because it's kind of just a series of short stories or something. But, um, yeah, that's the biggest shame to me, is that when these things are put together, I know that Hollywood is... uh, it's, It's art... It's business and art coming together. It is a business, uh, and that that's what it is. It's a business. There's an investment that's made, and it, there has to be a return on that investment. Uh, and it's it's an odd situation because you're you're peddling an an artistic you know endeavor to, to for that financial gain. So it's it's a really odd relationship that that the creativity and the business side of Hollywood have together. But it just bums me out when you get these gravestones that in the desert in a in a void, and they're these great um, testaments to endeavors that are now forgotten. You know, folly, and 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 that's what you get when you've got a, a film, a sequel, two reboots, and you just look at them all side by side, and you think. What a testament to folly that is. Yeah. <laughs> that there's this endeavour that people thought, we'll do it this way. Oh, it doesn't really work. We'll do it this other way. Ah, oh, it doesn't really work. And that's why I was kind of happy just with the, the first two. A film and a lesser sequel. I mm. could live with a film and a lesser sequel. This is happening so often at the moment, it's endemic. The studio hire Black & Decker to make a Black & Decker picture. Where this film succeeds, it's because of Shane Black and Fred Decker. Where it's unsuccessful, it seems to be because the studio compromised the artistic vision of Black and Decker. You leave the cinema wishing it had been produced by Joel Silver, who would have allowed them to do what they wanted. And if it had been successful, it would have been entirely attributable to them. If it had failed, it would nevertheless still be their film. What we've got instead is Black and Decker diluted. And that's appealing to nobody. Maybe we should end it on my favourite quote from the Trey Parker, Matt Stone film, Basketball, which is, uh, hey, you lost the game, you know, how do you feel? Well, it was a team effort. It took everyone working together to fuck this one up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah.
Because, oh, because yeah. which is one of my favourite things to say. I often say at work, because working at an agency, it really is a lot of people with very good intentions trying yeah. to do a good job, but ultimately it does, it will often fall short. And uh, in this instance, I can only think that they were trying to make a film that, that had a bite of satire, that was still the film they wanted to make. They thought they wanted to do Predator in a fresh way, which focused more on a father-son relationship rather than uh, kind of an action hero or, or, or like almost a nameless action hero. So yeah. they, they grounded it in suburbia. They grounded it in a family. It was slightly misjudged. It didn't quite work. And then what's more, the studio didn't like elements. It tested poorly with audiences and scenes had to definitely get cut because... You know, actors were employed who maybe shouldn't have been. Problem upon problem sort of piles up. It probably, it didn't come out necessarily the way it should have done. And then beyond that, they tried to fix it. And that's the problem with a lot of these big um, studio pictures now. These days, it feels like Hollywood just needs to fix everything. They try to fix it. Yeah, it's a, it's an odd culture. This thing cost eighty eight million, which is a modest budget for yeah. one of these pictures these days. Like that's in Hollywood terms, that's almost walking around money. And I think without the studio's involvement, it may have failed to make its budget back. Right? It may have been a very good film that would have a a, a reputation that would only grow, just like Long Kiss Goodnight, just like The Last Boy Scout. Instead, they've stuck their oar in. And now it might make a bit of money. And I just don't, I, I don't see the point in exercising yeah, but... so much after the fact, blood, sweat and tears. The return on the investment of that additional time and additional attention is minimal. I, I know where you're coming from, but as you well know, it's a short term, short sighted industry because it's a corporate world. And if you're the one signing off the checks and, and, and signing things off and saying, yeah, let's do that. Your, your head's on the chopping block quickly yeah. if there's any problems with it. You can't play the long game and you can't sit there in the board meeting and go, yeah, but it will become a cult favourite. <laughs> Especially yeah. because these days, uh, no one, you know, DVD sales, home video sales aren't even a thing anymore. So now, now all you can ho- hope is that it really catches on on Netflix and then maybe you get, because you're still not going to make the same money off it that you would have done DVD sales or VHS sales. So you've got to hope that it catches on it not on Netflix and they want to turn it into a mini-series or something after yeah, off the back yeah. of it. So that's that's kind of part of the problem. Whoever, whoever was responsible for greenlighting this and okaying the budget intermittently has to justify that decision. And if it doesn't seem to be going correctly, then it's their job, their role, to try to correct that. Mm-hmm. And for us, yeah, you're right. For us, we'd say, whoa, don't touch anything. Listen, it's going to be a really good film. We're not in the business of making really good films. We're in the business of making profitable films. Mm. A little bit like um, <laughs> I remember in, in Bowfinger, Eddie Murphy says, we're not trying to make a film here. We're trying to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, yeah, it's, um, we're at cross purposes. We don't mean to be like, I'd, I'd, I hope people don't, find it pretentious when we bang on about this stuff it's just that we were raised in an environment where it was common for a film to be both successful and uh, critically worthwhile and it wasn't just Spielberg stuff as I've said it's Die Hard as well it's Johnny McTiernan and Sam Raimi um, and James Cameron 
you know, the, the Marvel pictures do well, and I, I'm impressed and interested to see the next move for Taika Waititi, for instance. Oh, yeah, yeah, but definitely. There's an awful lot of huge films being made that are okay. They're all right. But it's just commerce at the moment. Too often it's just commerce. And uh, maybe what it will take is um, one of my favourite people in the world, Megan Ellison of, of Annapurna Pictures. Maybe it will take her take uh, granting a budget of 50 to 100 million to an interesting director, maybe like Shane Black, and saying, make the picture you want to make, make your action-oriented picture, and we would we, we just step away. Hopefully it makes 200 Maybe it only takes 80. Maybe we lose a bit of money on this one. Well, what we're talking about is a kind of... <laughs> it's something that we won't find because financial backers want to give money to, say, Paul Thomas Anderson and say, make the film you want to make. This is your artistic ambition, you are an expression of yourself. It's very rare for people to say, like, John McTiernan, you make action films. I want you to express yourself in the action milieu. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't make any money because forever... It's always been westerns, action pictures, war movies. They have to make money. If you want to express yourself, you make a David Lynch film. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. completely different environment. Um, the funny thing is, though, when George Lucas expressed himself, everybody hated it for three films, but it did make money. It did make loads of money. Yeah. But he, <laughs> he also... Um, it's quite interesting when you see the way he put those films together because he would go back and do reshoots. All big films have to have reshoots because you edit it and then realise actually, these bits don't work. It's not quite how I storyboarded it. I should do it again. Yeah. But he wasn't remaking 80 90% of the film. He wasn't redoing the whole third act. It's quite interesting to see some of the documentaries from the time where he realises, you can tell he's realised, I have to live with this now. I've made my bed. And I can reshoot some bits, but that's that, because it's my money, and I don't yeah. have any more to put into it. And um, Whereas now... There seems to be a bottomless pit for to go and reshoot 90% of the film in the case with the new Han Solo uh, film uh, and then yeah. just just to fix it. So it's it's a different thing when it's not your own pocket. Yeah, we're in, a, in, a, in an astonishing age for stuff like that. You know, Kevin Spacey replaced by Christopher Plummer. Uh, it, you know, in commercial terms, an intelligent move. In artistic terms, an audacious move. Luke and I talked about it last year and said, Jesus Christ. You know, go for it, Ridley. Fuck. What a project. Give me a week. Either I get it done or I die of a heart attack. A massive coronary <laughs> and Kit Plummer goes with me. But fuck, I'll give it a go just as a thing to do, just to see if I, as a, as a 78-year-old man, I can still cut it. The business has evolved, Fletch, in the same <laughs> way that the hunt has evolved with the Predator. But that was... Um... Hey, look. He gave it a go, and uh, yeah. and we got we got excited about something. So that's the Predator. I will probably try and catch it on streaming uh, at some point when it when it hits up. And that's more I can more than I can say for Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, which is a film I I will never watch again. We spent forty five minutes talking about the ways this film hasn't worked. It doesn't make it an unwatchable film, and it's still an entertaining film. Hey, and... I had a really good time yeah. when I was in that in that cinema. I had a really good time, and I left. I tell, I tell you one of the things maybe that helped. I'd been working really hard. I'd been pulling some 50-hour weeks. It was late coming home, very late indeed. I hadn't seen a lot of Lex. And we said, Friday, we're having a date night. We're doing it. We're going to have dinner. Yeah. We're going to see a film. And that film was The Predator. And I think no matter what happened, just being together, laughing together in the cinema to a bunch of one-liners worked and 
we had a good time with that and and we we left having enjoyed ourselves and that is the shared experience of going to the cinema and that's that's still we wouldn't have had that same experience had we sat at home got onto netflix or now tv and watched a film on there with a bottle of wine which of course we do do and we do have a good time but you still can't compare going to see it at the theater i had a date night on shane black fletch and it worked out well Thanks for joining us on the Electronic Labyrinth, which you can listen to through Spotify, through iTunes, through Stitcher, and through our own website, onesensationalshot.com, which is where you'll also find a growing archive of articles and reviews. Follow us on Instagram, that's onesensationalshot, and support the site through buying our old posters, tapes, laser discs, records, all of that's on our eBay, One Sensational Shop. To close, Many thanks to a fellow who will prove integral to my own film watching this winter, Murfin Williams. A month ago, Murfin and his partner were shifting their entire Laserdisc library, of which Predator was a part, and I feel very lucky to have claimed a beautiful 31-disc taste of that collection in exchange for a very reasonable donation to a charity that means a lot to Murfin, and now to us, Stage Text. Stage Text is a charity that provides subtitling in theatres and arts venues to increase access to live performance for deaf and hard of hearing people. And One Sensational Shot would be delighted if you took the time to visit their website, stagetext.org. You'll be hearing more about Murph and the laser discs he gave to me next time you join us on the evening glass. But until then, check out onesensationalshot.com for yet more Shane Black idolatry. And don't forget to pay a visit to stagetext.org. You've been listening to Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton. Thank you very much for your time. favourite Arnie one-liner of all time the original film Okay, Uh, and I know James Taylor James Taylor also is his favourite Arnie one-liner I think Um, stick around (laughs) when the guy's pinned to the wall which uh, yeah works well I thought that would be the one you were talking about my (laughs) favourite of his is in a different John McTiernan picture in Last Action Hero he throws an ice cream at Alion it spears him in the back of the head and kills him because they're in the movie world and Arnie says ice dad guy corner phrase (laughs) (laughs) Ha 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 